we're going to start in verse uh, 17 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 20. Let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask as we approach your word that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts, illuminate our minds to understand your word as it is written. Allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. The, we realize that it's a special privilege in this age only to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The, that was something new that started in Acts chapter 2, and, and we've been privileged to be born within that group, to be reborn into the body of Christ. We ask that as your children, you feed us on your word in Jesus' name. <clears throat> talked periodically in the past about the work of the shepherds. In other words, what is a shepherd supposed to be doing in the flock? Um, we've talked about the qualifications for the job. Uh, if you're interested, you can look those up. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Why have I had that in my memory? Because I've had to look it up over and over and over. Those are the qualifications for this work. It's alluded to also in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. We're going to go there today for a little bit. Uh, but the work of the shepherd we found mostly in the Old Testament, actually. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, God laid out seven, there we go, seven tasks that are all part of the job of the shepherd. Why am I looking to the Old Testament to find it? Well, because sheep haven't changed since then, and therefore the job of the shepherd hasn't changed. So, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul reiterates that job to the Ephesian elders. He was on the island of Malta. He had called the Ephesian elders to visit with him there one last time before he went to Jerusalem, where he was eventually executed. <clears throat> And he reiterated those jobs in a truncated form, but still he showed them that their work was to stay there in Ephesus and to carry out the work of the shepherd. But nothing was mentioned about joy there. So the question today is, where do the shepherds find joy, or where should they find joy? And is, does that apply to all of us? And the answer to that is yes, it does. We want to ask, what brings joy to a shepherd? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian believers. He hasn't seen them ever since he left because of the riots there in Acts chapter 17. It's been some time. And he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye, that's the plural you in the Old English, ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. There's a time clause there, at his coming. For you are, present tense, our glory and our joy. So let's talk about that. <clears throat> First thing Paul says is he kept trying to get to Thessalonica to visit the Thessalonian believers, and he says Satan hindered him. Now, how did he know it was Satan hindering him? I don't know. We're not told. I don't want you to get the idea that anytime you don't get what you want, it's Satan hindering you. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Uh, and 
frankly, he can't be bothered to go trip you up anytime he gets a chance. However, he does have demonic hosts that might be involved, but even that isn't a guaranteed thing. If you missed out on Wednesday night, you missed the question that Corey brought up. When a believer sins, is it always Satan causing him to sin? And the answer is no, not necessarily. So we went to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, and we saw all the works of the flesh. That's our old sin nature. And we saw that all the things that we think of as, boy, that's terrible. Yeah, the devil must have been making them. No, that's the flesh at work. That's you and me. We're real good at that. However, I can say this. Satan definitely approves of your sin. So if you want to please the enemy, just keep it up. Just keep it up. Anytime you're aware of sin, you be, you be aware that you're pleasing him. <clears throat> so let's move on from that idea. He said he was hindered by Satan. We don't know how he knew. It's just a fact. But in verses 19 and 20, Paul says something pretty important. He says that the believers there in Thessalonica were his glory and his joy. He specifies that they were his hope for blessing and honor at the coming of Christ. <clears throat> He says they'll be his joy. They will be his joy. To see them standing before the Lord <clears throat> and to know that he's been a co-laborer with Jesus. We're going to talk about that today too, what, what Randy alluded to about joining Jesus in double harness, that we've been invited to be his co-laborers, working with him to draw other people to Christ and to feed his flock. So if you don't mind holding your finger there in 1 Thessalonians. Flip back to Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> I'd like you to notice what Jesus said there and to whom he was saying it. <clears throat> it's always important to see who's talking and who they're talking to. Then you start reading to see what they say and what does it mean. It's called context. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus is talking to a crowd of believers, uh, I shouldn't say a believer, a crowd of Jewish people, and he is exhorting them to change something. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you, plural again, ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going back over to 1 Thessalonians, but <clears throat> several things I want to point out from there in Matthew. Uh, one is that the word for yoke there in the Greek is a specific word for a double harness. Uh, the yoke that you could put across the necks of two oxen, in the case of oxen, they had them made for people too. Uh, in fact, I saw a junk uh, single yoke for carrying two buckets on a man's shoulders at a, uh, oh, I don't know what you call it, a, supposedly an antique store, but it was rotted half away. It, was, it really was junk. Uh, but I, I almost bought it because I thought, you just don't see those anymore. And I thought, well, you can carve one. Yeah, right, like I'll ever take the time. Um, but they were a beam that went across a man's shoulders that fit onto his shoulders and around the back of his neck with the post sticking out to the side so you could put hooks off of that onto two large buckets and carry it without it just pulling your arms out of the sockets. You put the whole rest on your shoulders. Well, they made those for two people as well. So that two fairly well-matched laborers could work together and increase, they could multiply their strength by two people pulling on the same load. 
they could move more than twice as much as either one could have moved them together because they have the balance of two people working. <clears throat> so that's the first thing I want to point out is that he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I've asked people that raise horses and train them for draft horses, draft animals, how you train a young horse to harness. They said, you harness them with an old horse. You put them in double harness with an old horse. And yeah, they're going to kick and bulk and and stuff, and the old horse is just going to obey the command, commands from the, the driver and do what he's supposed to do. In fact, he might get annoyed with that young horse, turn around and bite him, and let him know, get with the program. But the thing is, you put him in double harness, and pretty soon the young one learns that the easiest thing in life is if they say, go, you go. If they say, stop, you stop. If they say, turn left, you turn left. They got, they got real words for that, you know, for horses, but I don't know them all, so rather than display my ignorance here, I'll just tell you that they do have commands for oxen and horses and whatnot, and the way you train them is to harness them and double harness with an older horse that's fully experienced, or ox, as the case may be. So what he said here is two things. Take my yoke, double harness, on me, and learn from me. That's what a young horse does in a double harness with an older horse. It says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Meek means yielded. He's not deciding, no, I'm going to decide where we're going to go. No, it's this, the driver tells him where to go, and he goes. He pulls. I am meek, I'm yielded, and lowly in heart. And you, plural, shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> you see, what they've been trying to do and this is true for virtually all world religions, but it was especially true for the Jews, is they were trying to please God on their own strength. They were trying to obey the law. They were trying to fulfill all the demands of the Old Testament law. It's not hard. It's totally impossible. It cannot be done. In fact, that's the whole point of the law. In Romans chapter 7, verse 13, we find that the reason the law was given to show, was to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that we could see the extent of our lostness, that we cannot do what God asks, a heart from him working through us. So Jesus is telling these people, you're wearing yourselves out. If you want rest, come to me, work with me, and you're going to find it restful because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. First place, he's doing all the work. And second place, the only new commandments he gives are ones that still we have to have the Holy Spirit to do, but they're not grievous. This love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. That's the new commandment. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, and you shall find rest for your souls. The bottom line is that when we choose to join Jesus in that double harness, we become co-laborers with Jesus. And co-laborers get to share in the joy of a job well done, even if the big guy did the most of the work. The, the fact is, they got it done together. I've told you before, when I was three my dad was building a, I don't know what it was, a study, I guess, in the basement of our rental house. And, uh, of course, the three-year-old wants to help daddy. Right. So he put a 16-penny concrete nail in my baby hand and wrapped his big hand around it so there was no way he could possibly hit my hand. And put my baby hand on that hammer handle and wrapped his big hand around that so he was controlling it. And he gave that nail a couple of bangs to started into the wood and says, okay, now you can go help mama. And I trottled upstairs thinking I helped daddy. 
know, feeling as though I got the credit for doing something. I didn't do anything. He did it. In fact, it slowed him down to involve me. But that's what Jesus is inviting us to do, to let us wrap his big hand around us and use us so that we become his hands and his feet and his voice in this world. All right, here's another question you might ask. Well, actually, let me say this first. As you walk with him, as you serve with him, as you join him in the double harness, one of the things you learn is that your priorities are starting to change. What's important to you changes. Your perspective is changing. How you see people, how you see the world, how you see world situations, the news, everything, politics, everything is starting to change. And things that, we, that once seemed terribly important to us become rather trivial from our perspective, our new perspective with, with Jesus. And goals that we felt strongly about, some of them have totally become irrelevant. You know, I used to want to buy a sailboat and circumnavigate the globe. Sorry, it ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. Not important anymore. Yes, the result is rest to our souls. Our anxieties over the fears of this world begin to fade away, and the very temporary, shallow joys of this world are less attractive to us. Things that used to please us, we look at it and say, boy, that's a waste of time. Waste of time, waste of money. I, I, I don't have time for that. The older I get, the more aware I am that I don't have time to waste. So here's the question I was about to ask and almost skipped what I wanted to say. Are you called to service? I've heard many people tell me, well, I don't feel called. Well, guess what then? Get over your feelings and turn to Romans chapter 8. We love to read Romans 8, 28 because it says, God causes all things to work together for good to them that love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Oh, so if you're not called, then God's not working things to your benefit. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But if we read the rest of that passage down through verse 31, it says if you're saved, you are called to his service, period. There are no exceptions. Yes, you are called. So that's the short answer. <clears throat> For three decades and more, I worked at Gunderson here in Portland, and I desperately wanted out of there. Uh, I wanted to change jobs. I wanted to leave. But Ann and I were both really keenly aware that God had given me that job. And so both of us felt that until he directs me elsewhere, I was not free to leave. So I stayed, and I served where I was. I, I stayed put. I worked. I taught. I took opportunities to counsel and encourage believers there at work. Frequently it was marital counseling. Sometimes it was uh, just teaching the Bible, sitting in my office. One time I had an office that was... Uh, Six foot by three foot. <clears throat> and I did a lot of serious Bible teaching in that little closet of an office. Um, I had a bigger office later, but it was an old storage room that they had put a window into. Um, not that it actually looked out anywhere. It went out onto the shop floor, but, you know. <clears throat> but I did a lot of Bible teaching and counseling there, praying with people. No, that wasn't what I was paid to do, but I had the freedom to do that, so I stayed. When I got laid off, it wasn't a grief to me. I'd been there for 33 and a third years. It didn't grieve me one bit to get laid off. It was a total relief. I said, do you want me to finish out the day, or do you want me to just leave? He said, you can leave now if you want. And I said, cool. I grabbed my, heart, my, my lunch bucket and walked out. 
bang, gone. There's no layoffs, though, in God's service. They're kind of as retirement. I'm told God's service doesn't pay particularly well, but the retirement is clean out of this world. <clears throat> There's no layoffs, though. He's called us to serve, period. Now, we may remember Samson and other people like him and say, well, well wasn't Samson laid off? How about Balaam? <clears throat> well, Samson was in trouble because of his careless attitude towards the calling of God. He suffered losses because of his sin. Now, I'm t I've never played hockey, but I'm told in the game of hockey they have something called a penalty box. Um, I guess you get a timeout there. So Samson was in the penalty box for a while. Pretty grievous. I mean, they gouged out his eyeballs and made him turn a grindstone in the dark uh, until God called him out one last time and he killed 3,000 of God's enemies in that one last gesture of God's power through him. Balaam, here's another story entirely. He was a real prophet. You can go back and read Numbers chapters 24 through 31 and see that Balaam was a genuine prophet of God, but he sold out. He wanted the money and he wanted the honor that the world could offer him, so he sold out and he died for it. He was in real trouble. But in Romans 8, 28 through 30, we see that every believer is called to service. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, we see, and it's the church looking back onto their life on earth. This is the church is out of the picture on earth from Revelation 4 forward on. Uh, and so in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, they're they're before the throne. And they're saying that you've called us out of every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue, and you've made us, past tense, to be kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It's not Israel. Israel wasn't called out of every nation and tongue and people and kindred and so forth. This is the Gentile church, or well, including the Jewish church, but it's the whole bride of Christ. We are priests and kings, not a kingdom of priests. Judah, well, Israel proper, was called to be a kingdom of priests. And we can read about that in Exodus, that they were called to be a kingdom of priests. The church is not called a kingdom. The church is called a body, and we have a head. Jesus is the head of the church. It's an organism. It's not an organization. A local assembly has a sense of organization. Well, we don't have much organization, believe me. Uh, we're called the perfect church for those who aren't. Very good reason. Uh, but it's an organism, not primarily an organization. It's not a club. We don't have a hierarchy of, you know, officials within the body of Christ. <clears throat> but we are called to act as priests. In Hebrews 13, 15, I'm going to read that. Well, actually, I've got it written right here, so I'll read it to you. But <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 15, no, I guess I don't have it written down, so I will turn there. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, he's talking to the Jewish believers so they know exactly what he's talking about, about the priesthood. But it, it carries through to all believers. I'll get there here eventually. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, he says, By him, therefore, let us, that's the believers, offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, or continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
that's part of our priestly assignment is to bring sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God. The other part of that is over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where it says that we are ambassadors of Christ. You see, the priests not only represented man before God, bringing sacrifices and, and praise and thanksgiving on the, ba- on, the, on the behalf of Israel, they also spoke to Israel on the behalf of God. You know, Eliezer had to speak to Joshua and the other people on the behalf of God. Um, the, the various priests down through the Old Testament had to speak on behalf of God. They're ambassadors for God. In fact, somebody was asking at Bible study if we still have prophets today. Well, yes and no. I mean, a prophet is somebody who speaks for God, period. It doesn't matter whether they're telling the future or simply expounding on his word. That's a prophet if you're speaking for God. Some people are gifted in special situations to speak for God and say, no, this is what God says about this. And and everybody recognizes that was God talking to them. Uh, I've had people like that speak to me that corrected me about something, and I realized very clearly this is God speaking through them to me. But the Old Testament prophets, because they didn't have God's Bible to turn to and say, here's where God says this, they were frequently telling the future. So in that sense, I don't think we have that at least as much anymore. We saw it a little bit in the book of Acts. But they were speaking for God, and today we are called ambassadors for God. You can read it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. You think about what an ambassador does for a country. They're speaking on behalf of the country that appointed them to be an ambassador. That's not an elected um, position, by the way. That's an appointment. You were appointed by God to be an ambassador for him. You're speaking for him. You're representing him. It should control your behavior and your words. We're called to be his hands and his feet and his voice as his ambassadors, but we are working with Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus told the 11 disciples that were left after Judas left, told those 11 disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, from a human perspective, we'll think, well, that's kind of an exaggerated, arrogant way to say things. No, it was a simple truth, because what he was asking them to do was flat impossible. He was asking them to live a holy life in, in, under the control of the Holy Spirit, and apart from that control by the Holy Spirit, Jesus working through them, it was impossible. They could not do it. Think about Jesus. Or not, you know, well, Jesus too, but think about Peter. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter says, if that's really you, command me to come to you walking on the water. Oh, my goodness. Why would you want to shoot off your mouth and do like that? I mean, you might say, yeah, come. Well, so that meant he had to get out of the boat. They were in a big storm. Do you know any of you work in heavy water before? I know some of you have. George and I were both commercial fishermen. You know what happens if you fall overboard in a storm? It's goodbye, Charlie. You aren't getting back aboard. Not unless they can come chase you down right then. You will not be able to swim back to the boat. The boat will drift, drift before the wind faster than you can ever hope to swim. That's just a fact. Peter knew what he was doing getting out of that boat. He was a commercial fisherman. And he walked on the water just a few steps. And then he did what we always do. He took his eyes off Jesus and he sank. Blunk. As he sank, he cried out, Save me, Lord Jesus. Immediately he reached out his hand, lifted him up, and said, Why did you doubt? You were doing good. Okay, but what he was doing was not hard. It was impossible. 
I mean, I can walk on water if it's an eighth inch deep and it's on blacktop. No, that's no, that doesn't count. This was in a storm in a deep lake, and apart from Jesus, it was absolutely impossible. So that's what we're being called to do. And that's why he doesn't ask us to do it on our own. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And the joy that we'll receive in hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, will surpass all the hard things we've experienced along the way. If you've led other people to Christ, then they're going to be there. And you'll be able to say, I got to be part of that. You know, Don Cooper that I told you about, he's one of the few people I've ever led to the Lord. But his life was totally transformed immediately. And he became a preacher on the streets of Lincoln City and spent 20 years telling people about Jesus. And I got to be a part of that. I don't take any credit for it. I was just a welder at work and told him how he could be born again. Jesus did all that, all the rest. His word did all the rest. If you've led people to faith in Christ, there'll be a special personal joy to you at his coming. If you've drawn others to walk with him, even if they're already believers and you've taught them how to walk with him, you've ex made, served as an example for them so they learn to walk with with God because of you, then that'll also be a joy to you because it's an honor to him. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, and this is only half of the verse, but it says, speaking of the end time, speaking of the, of the return of the Lord, it says, then they that be wise will shine as the brightness of the firmament, that's an old word for the heavens, and they that turn away, excuse me, they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There is a reward for a faithful walk with Christ, and part of that reward is sharing in his joy, Jesus' joy. You remember in, uh, the, the, it got quoted this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, it says that looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God. We're going to share his joy. <clears throat> but let's go back to the original question. What brings joy and blessing to shepherds? <clears throat> well, in Acts chapter 20, we can turn there if you want. Um, Acts chapter 20, Paul had called the Ephesian elders <clears throat> to where he was on the island of Malta. And he was laying down what they needed to do as the shepherds and overseers, the the elders of the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> There's always plural, by the way. These were the elders, plural, of the church, singular, at Ephesus. <clears throat> and he said to them, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. Uh, well, let me back up to verse 26. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the, all the counsel of God. He says, something's going wrong in your life. It isn't my fault. I gave you the whole truth. On the basis of that, verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, again plural, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. There's the deity of Christ snuck right in there. The church of God who he has purchased with his own blood. I know some Bibles have inserted the words of his son, but that's not in there. That's not in the original. 
which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and of your, of your own selves, in other words, out of the leadership, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that for the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now it says, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace. And he went ahead and left them. <clears throat> he headed off for Jerusalem. So what we saw there was the, <clears throat> the job of the shepherds in brief and the warning that there were going to be false teachers coming. There's going to be people coming that are going to try to pull out weak Christians. By the way, that's what wolves do. If there's a, a herd of deer or antelope or elk or anything like that, they're watching for a weak individual because they can run the whole herd. That one weak one won't be able to keep up. They'll surround him or her and pull him down and kill him. And that's what Satan's plan is for us, too. If he can find ones that are weak, that are not walking with Jesus, that are not learning his word, that are not gaining in strength, then he'll pull them down. He can't, he can't destroy you spiritually. He can't take you away from Jesus. You belong to Jesus permanently. But he can destroy your testimony, demolish your joy, and make you a bad witness for Jesus. And he will if he can, if you allow him to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, by the way, these shepherds were specifically told to watch for that kind of predator and guard against them. If you want to read the whole job of the church, uh, excuse me, job of the shepherd, it's in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, and the guarding against predators is alluded to there, but not spelled out. It is spelled out here, but it's alluded to in uh, Ezekiel 34, 10. <clears throat> First Peter chapter five verse one through four. Peter did much the same thing. I'm going to read that too. Uh, it wasn't to a specific group of elders, but to all elders throughout time. This is the things we have to be aware of and respond to. <clears throat> Peter's talking in First Peter five one through four. The elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter was one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Here's the exhortation, verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. What do we say we feed the flock with? God's word. That's it. This isn't a game. You feed them on God's word. It's sheep food. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. The word oversight or overseer is the same thing as supervision or supervisor. That's all it means. It means you're watching over and taking care of a group of people, <clears throat> seeing to it their needs are met, seeing to it they're fed, and seeing to it that they're not running astray. Is taking the, the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for a filthy looker. Not, in other words, money isn't the focal point, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords, you're not the boss, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And here's the kicker, verse 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, that's Jesus, in case you hadn't guessed, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you, plural, ye, shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 
Now, I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> There's several things I want to point out. Um, one is that his first thing he told him was to feed the flock. By the way, back in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1, that's the first thing there, too. You feed the flock. Don't concern feeding you. You feed them. That's what you're to do. Now, if, if I study God's word enough that I can feed somebody else, by necessity, I'm also getting fed because that's the first thing that happens. But these leaders he was condemning in Ezekiel 34 were meeting their own physical needs rather than worrying about the spiritual and physical and uh, political needs. They, they were in charge of the whole nation, and they weren't doing their job. He says, you feed that flock, you care for them, providing a spiritual and physical example for others to follow. They were not to allow the question of payment to be their motives for service. Money was not the point of their service. They were told also that they're not the bosses. They're not lords over the flock. They're to serve as examples. Uh, somebody was telling me today about a pastor she knows that's very controlling. Well, I'm not about that. If you got a ministry you want to get going, I'll say go for it. You know, if you, uh, unless somebody is clearly stepping outside of God's word, I'm not going to try to put a damper on people. Uh, if somebody is teaching false doctrine, I'm going to approach them and tell them. And if they persist, then yeah, then, then I would have to step in. But in general, that's not my job. At that point, it becomes protecting the flock from predators. But the rest of it, it you know, when, when uh, Sister Bobby was asked if she could teach a Bible study at Camel, I said, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I had been the one that heard about it, that they needed somebody, and I opened it up for everybody, and boy, she jumped in. I want it. And she went and did it faithfully until they shut her down and told her, yeah, this isn't going to work. And they started doing another something right in the middle of her Bible study, so it was just distracting and they couldn't do it anymore. Now she's looking for kids to have a Bible um, Sunday school class here, you know, because she wants to serve God with her life. And there's others among you that want to serve God with your life. And I want to support that. This is why we support missions. You know, I'm not over there telling them how to do their job. My goodness, I don't know how to do their job. But we are sending money so they can, you know, and the, the church in Kenya was sent Bibles so they can teach and was sent teaching books to teach the elders so they have something to teach. They can learn to study the Word because they didn't know how. We can, we can support that. But that's what, that's what the shepherds are supposed to be doing. He concluded that there would be specific reward for having served well in that capacity. He calls it a crown of glory that fadeth not away, passes not away. When will he receive it? It says, when the chief shepherd comes. Just the same thing he said to the church at Thessalonica, that at the coming of Christ, these people are going to be his hope of joy and honor and blessing. <clears throat> now, there's five such crowns. It says they'll receive a crown of glory that passes not away when the chief shepherd comes, when Jesus, the true shepherd, returns to claim his own. And they've joined him in his work, so they're going to share in his joy. And that's true for all believers, not just the church leaders. You know, if you've shared in his work by going out and telling your friends and neighbors about Jesus, by, by serving in the church in whatever capacity, by serving other believers, pouring out your life for the sake of others, uh, God says you're going to share in his joy because you've acted as his hands and his feet and his voice here on earth. So you're going to share in his joy. 
There's five such crowns mentioned in the New Testament. I'm not going to go through them today. Uh, in fact, i got to tell you, there's really not much about each one of them. I've heard people preach real involved sermons on the five crowns, and I think, where are you getting all this information? Uh, I don't know, because there's not much said in the Scripture about it. All I can tell you is there's five things that are mentioned. Uh, I can't even remember all five right now. I used to be able to tell you what five there were. But, but I, would, I would want to point out that in all five cases, the word for crown is the Greek word stephanos. If you know anybody named Stephen or Steve or Stephanie, that's that Greek word. It means the victor. It's a victor's crown. It's the wreath of laurel that they put on a, a, an Olympiad's head for winning in the Olympic Games. There's a victor's crown. It's not diademos, which is the diadem that's put on a ruler's head, a king, a queen, or on Jesus. When he says crown him with many crowns, it's diadems in his case. He's the king of kings. It's not what we're getting. It's, it's a wreath, a victor's crown. <clears throat> but it says, unlike the leaves, you know, they, I, I've never been to Hawaii, but I've seen people with pictures of them with those hibiscus flowers around their neck. Well, how, how long do you suppose those last? Well, you know, they're a flower. They fade out fairly quick, and then they're gone. I guess they got lots more of them, so that's fine. Uh, but the same thing for the laurel leaves. And those wreaths they put on their heads, it was good for a day. It was good for maybe a week. But after that, it starts to fade, and leaves start falling off, and, you know, bugs start making nests in it and stuff, and it's no good anymore. This one's permanent. Whatever honor God gives you because you joined him in his work, you joined him in double harness and served with him, that's permanent. <clears throat> we can see that one result of faithful service is the joy of God's pleasure at our work, in our work. Jeremiah, for example, had a very rough ministry. They beat him up, they threw him in a pit, they pulled him back out and asked him some questions, beat him up again and threw him back in the pit. They were going to kill him, they didn't kill him, they were going to starve him, they didn't starve him. They gave him bread and water while they were under siege. And ironically, when the city finally fell to that siege, the enemy soldiers treated Jeremiah better and honorably, much more so than his own people. <clears throat> he had a very rough ministry. And as far as we know, only two people believed his words while he was in that ministry. Did he still get a well done, thou good and faithful servant? You bet he did, because he was absolutely faithful. He did exactly what he was told to do. And the people he was reaching to rejected it at every turn. Now, since then, there's been millions of people that have read the book of Jeremiah and understood what he said and believed it and been blessed and, and thrilled by the promises that are there and encouraged by the examples that are there and warned by the the warnings that are there. So yeah, he's been well rewarded. How about Jonah? He preached one sermon for three days running and and thousands of people got saved. Does he get a better, well done, though, good and faithful servant than Jeremiah did? No, because A, he wasn't all that faithful. As you remember, he kind of went the other way. In fact, he got a water taxi ride because of it. Uh, and when he did go back, he preached hoping that they'd reject it and all go to hell because that's what he wanted. He wanted them burned up. He said so. And he said that God was going to destroy the city and they repented and the whole, whole 
city, state, nation, whatever you want to call it, the Ninevites got saved. And no, Jonah was mad at God. Okay, to me, that's not the right attitude to have in ministry. Did Jonah get the same well done thou good? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, he did what God called him to do, but he wasn't doing a very good job of it, and he didn't do it with, a, with an obedient spirit at all. He did it because he was mad. It is possible to be a servant of God, serving as a shepherd and not experience the joy of the Lord. I don't want that to happen for anybody. I don't want it to happen for me. <clears throat> How would we miss out on joy? Well, in Hebrews 13, 17, if you don't mind going back to Hebrews, I know we're jumping around a lot today, but we're talking about a particular subject that's pointed out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but it's spelled out <clears throat> in other places. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. <clears throat> He's speaking to the same group of people that he said, by, by him therefore let us offer the sacrifices of praise and so forth. In verse 17 he says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. It's not talking about civil government here. Yes, we're also called to obey civil government. Look in Romans chapter 13. But here he's talking about the elders in your church. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. They have to own up to God what happened on their watch. If your church went belly up under the leadership of this particular group and it was because they were teaching false doctrine or not teaching good doctrine or just failing to do their job, that will not be to their honor. The church at Laodicea that we can read about in Revelation chapter 3, the leadership of that church are going to be grieved at the coming of Christ because their church ceased to exist under their poor leadership. And we can read about poor leadership again back in Hebrew, not Hebrews, back in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. It was poor leaders he was talking to and scolding them and letting them know this is the job of the shepherd. Get off your backside and do it. He says, I'm going to take it away from you. You're not going to be doing the job at all anymore. He says, they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. That when they stand before God and say, well, this is what we did, that they can do so with joy and not with grief. And the bottom line is, it says, that's unprofitable for you. It's a bad thing for you as the church if the leaders over you are having to give account to God and say, this ain't working, God. I don't know what we're doing wrong. This is not working. And I've known people like that. Uh, Ann's brother-in-law was called as a pastor in Montana. <clears throat> he was a good man, and he was well-trained. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He was well-trained. He had a good heart. He still does. And he's still in ministry. Well, what he found out is after they hired him to be a pastor, and that's, by the way, not the way to call a pastor in the first place, but we won't go there. It turned out they had a bunch of money, and they wanted to build a new building. And they wanted him to lead them into that. Well, the problem was the church was split over details about the building. And he recognized that fixing the church split was top priority, not getting the building built. So he kept concentrating on that. And the church went right ahead and rebelled and split. One group telling him, you come with us and we're going to go down the street. We're going to start a new church. And he says, nope. And he left both groups to themselves. And he went back to being an electrical engineer. And he's in ministry in the church he's in. And fostering spiritual growth in other people. But he backed out of that, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. 
And he was right. He was right to do so. You can miss out on joy. <clears throat> Leaders whose flock rebels against the word and follows the world's pattern of beliefs and behaviors still have to give to account give account to God for it. I told you before about a pastor we had that was giving books on philosophy and so forth written by pagan authors that were contrary to God's word. He's giving them to people in the church and not warning them, look, what I'm showing you is, is pure poison. If you read it, read it for interest, but please understand this is not what God says. No, he wasn't giving them any warning like that because that's what he believed, see. So, and when we finally confronted him, we found out it's because he didn't believe God's word. He didn't believe the Bible is the word of God. And at that point, of course, most people think, then why are you a pastor? Well, because he needed the money. Honestly. I mean, when they hired him, he lied to us and told us he was in full agreement with our statement of faith. No, he wasn't. Because the core issue is that we believe the Bible to be the word of God and that that's the way it's got to be taught. And he was all too willing to teach contrary to that and say, well, yeah, but that part's just mythology. That's not really true. Really? So you have the wisdom to go through God's word and tell which parts are true and which parts are false? That scares me. So how do we find joy as a shepherd? <clears throat> a shepherd feels joy to see the spiritual prosperity of those he's been called to feed. If you've been feeding somebody and they haven't been growing, you're getting worried about them, you're praying for them, you're teaching them, and and all of a sudden one day they wake up and start growing and start studying the word on their own and sharing with others, that's a joy. And you, know, you don't take any credit for it because you were teaching them the same thing all those years and nothing happened. Well, but because God's word finally leaked in and God's spirit took over and then things started to happen. You ever notice how farmers can't make seeds sprout? They can plant them. They can water them. Then they stand around and they worry until they all come up. Uh, I was telling Anne last night about this bird they've got in Australia, uh, well, northern Australia and in Papua New Guinea. It's called a cassowary. The, the hens are about that tall. They're incredibly br brilliant colors, and they're dangerous as all get out. They'll kill you for nothing. They're about half the size of an, of an ostrich and real vicious. But they eat this one tree fruit that's about that big, and it's got a seed in it, about like an avocado seed. And they just swallow them whole. They don't chew. Well, they're birds, you know. But their digestive system is such that what comes out the other end is just the seed. And it turns out that's the only, only plant they eat, and that tree, the only seeds that will sprout are the ones that came through one of those kind of birds. So it's a symbiosis and a mutually dependent symbiosis where if the birds die out, so will the tree. If the tree dies out, so will the birds. That's all they eat, and the trees only sprout if they go through that bird. Okay. So when we start talking about God's word and we start looking to see that seed grow, I know that only God can make it grow. The seed doesn't grow unless he feeds it, gives it, breathes life into it. <clears throat> he rejoices, shepherd rejoices in the spiritual health of that flock. Numbers, that's a side issue. I mean, sure, it's nice when more people show up. It was a little depressing when we got down to seven people here on a normal Sunday morning. I mean, that made 17 people look like a big day. Today we're missing six people and we still got 27 people. That's pretty good. 
compared to the 11 and 12 and 7 and things like that we had 10 years ago. That's pretty good. But the job never changed. If you got seven sheep, you feed them sheep food. If you got 27 sheep, you feed them sheep food. If you got 127 sheep, you feed them sheep food. And if you ever vary from that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. But speaking to all the flock, Hebrews 7, 13, 17 says, it's unprofitable for you if the shepherds have to report failure in their ministry. So how do we feed on God's work? I didn't say on his word, I said on his work. Turn to John, please. John chapter 4, verse 34. <clears throat> Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus has been talking to the woman at the well there at Sychar in Samaria. The, the disciples had gone off to town to get him some food. They came back, found him talking to this woman, and they thought, what is he doing? And then she went off to town to get the men of the city, and they were trying to get Jesus to eat. Do you remember his reply? My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Why? He says, you say that the harvest is still three months off. I'm telling you, look, there it comes right now. They're coming back from the city. That's the crop. We got work to do. Forget lunch for right now. We'll eat later. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. A faithful shepherd has to echo that central purpose and passion that Jesus expressed there. He finds his sustenance in the person of Christ and in obedience to him. And he looks for satisfaction and joy in the service to which he's called. And that's true for all believers, not just the shepherds. If you belong to Jesus, then that right there ought to be the core value in your life. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And if you join him in double harness like Jesus invited you to do and keep that core value so that you're feeding on his work as well as on his word then you're going to share his joy Matthew chapter 25 verse 21 I'm going to just read it Jesus said his Lord spoke said to him he's finishing up a parable from the uh, tribulation kingdom age parables my food oops I skipped back to my previous deal Jesus said his Lord said unto him well done thou good and faithful servant thou hast been faithful over a few things I will make thee ruler over many things. And here's the, here's the key. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We're sharing in Jesus' joy, the joy that was set before him at the cross. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We seek to join Jesus in the work and to share in his joy. But the greatest joy a shepherd can have in this life is to see God's word taking root in the lives of the flock and to see their lives reflecting the glory of God as they're transformed by his word. To see leaders being raised up by the Spirit of God so he doesn't have to be fearful about what will become of the flock when he dies or leaves or whatever, when he's no longer able to serve, that's a joy. If he sees those leaders raising up so he knows the church is going to be in good hands, sure, he knows it belongs to God. But when Pat James got too sick to serve, he left fearful that the work was just going to collapse in his absence. Because he'd served faithfully for 20 years. Uh, but Richard Bannum and I reported frequently to him by phone. I never got to go to his house. I knew it was in Nahalem. That's all I knew. But we called him and let him know that the church was flourishing. We called him and let him know 
how things were going and how people were responding and how many people we had that week. And he was encouraged by that. So that both Pat and Jan were rejoicing knowing that the church was flourishing. Why? Because they were shepherds. That's all they wanted is for this church to flourish. They're both with the Lord now. They're sharing his joy. But that right there, that's the joy of the shepherds. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace that we'd learn to follow you, to join you in your work, to join you in double harness, and to serve, to be your hands and feet and voice here on the earth. We want to serve in such a way that will bring joy to you and so that we can share in your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.